invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10. We just started a couple of weeks ago a new series in Timothy, 1 Timothy. And um, while we are continuing in that series this week, we're not necessarily continuing in 1 Timothy this week. Uh, We found last week in 1 Timothy, as we taught through verses 1 through 7, um, the warning by Paul against those teachers who would teach some other doctrine. And we saw several warnings there. First, against those who would teach sound doctrine. Then against those who would get drawn away by fables. And then those who would be drawn away by endless genealogies. And, and our, our focus in that message last week was that we would, we would stay focused, that we would keep the main thing the main thing, that we would not get caught up in other things, whether it be some uh, drawn away by, by some new thing, or whether it be um, majoring on the minors, or whether uh, it be getting caught up in the intellectual at the expense of the spiritual. We desire that we would be sound and stable in the faith. In what would be our next passage, verses 8 and following, Paul gets more specific as it relates to the warnings specifically for the church at Ephesus there at the time that Timothy was there. It seems apparent through Paul's teaching that, that he was particularly concerned about one group of people who fell short of sound doctrine, and that being those who uh, did not use the law properly who desired to be teachers of the law but understood neither what they taught nor what their teaching affirmed. They thus, Paul would say, fell short of sound doctrine and would even speak toward particular men whose faith was shipwrecked by their their struggle to teach or understand and affirm the relationship between Christians and the law properly. Now, in a manner of speaking, we, we spoke a little bit about this in our Jeremiah series not long ago as I spoke on the New Covenant. I'm actually going to be speaking more on that when we finish Jeremiah 33, giving a follow-up message to the one that I preached just a couple of weeks ago as I feel now that I've preached it that it was entirely insufficient um, toward the end that I had hoped for. But the law wasn't the whole focus of that time, as we spoke of the Old and the New Covenant. We're going to cover some of that same ground throughout this series, but but today I want to start talking about the, the history of the controversy that surrounds Christians and the law. And we are going to start rooted in history, rooted in the, the struggle that, that we see particularly Peter and Paul engage in as it related to these things within the church. And first we're going to understand where this difficulty came from. We're not going to understand today all of where it spread and how it spread throughout the Roman Empire and how it spread throughout the church. But we are going to start, as you're there in Acts chapter 10, with God's initiating the, the, this change of perspective, initiating a relationship with the Gentile world, and then understanding how, how a church, which was Jewish in its inception, In the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people saved. Those that were there 
were there for Pentecost, right? They were there for this feast. They were Jewish believers, and the church had such a dramatically Jewish flavor, and how Jewish believers handled the transition to Gentile believers, uh, what they thought about it, how, how their perspective um, uh, formed and shifted and changed, and some of the struggles of that particular time in church history. And, and those struggles were, were strongly rooted in what is, in this question, what is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law, to the law of Moses? And I feel compelled to spend a little bit more time on this than simply talking through what, what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because of the nature or the relationship, particularly that we as conservative Christians, traditional Christians, Orthodox Christians, uh, hold with the law, um, and one which in, at various times and in various ways, the, the broader church, um, as we can trace it through history, has, has not always handled well. Some Christians uh, feel as though they need to submit wholly to the law. We're seeing a resurgence of this today in movements that, that, that have any number of names, such as the Hebrew Roots Movement and such, where they feel uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, to some degree, are in this category, where they feel uh, a deep compulsion to submit themselves at least to certain elements of the Old Testament law, uh, quite literally. Uh, there are some that, that, that claim a strong allegiance to the law for Christian living, emphasizing the inf- insufficiency of the law as it relates to salvation, uh, uh, labeling legalism as a term that only applies to those who would believe that you must keep the law for salvation, uh, and not seeing any contradiction between Christian living and the law or, or any problem with, with, with uh, merging the two. There are some that, that distinguish so strongly uh, between the elements of the law, that they see the moral law and they see the civil law, and they say that the moral law has continued, but the civil law has ceased, um, that we are bound to the moral law, that we are freed from the civil law uh, that goes outside of the obligations of, of God's people. The civil law were the Jewish components, the moral law are the timeless components. There are some that, reading Paul's statements in regard to the law, uh, cast off conscience, claiming that because the law is, for, uh, is, is done away with, or, or because we don't have the law, or because we're in this new uh, uh, time, or, or however it is that, that they perceive it, that we have no obligation to conscience anymore, that we have no obligation to morality, that we have no obligation to the morals that are reflected in the law. So we see this great span of of perspectives as it relates to Christians and the law. And I would like us to walk through this over the next several weeks in in a fairly nuanced way. We're going to start today with the history, and then we're going to talk about um, what that means as far as salvation, and then we're going to talk for several weeks about the law and sanctification. And of course, we'll be spending a great deal of time in the teachings of Paul, and and this for a particular reason. Uh, Peter spoke of Paul in 2 Peter And when he did so, he spoke of something unique about the teaching of Paul and of Paul's ministry. We're going to be jumping into context here. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this, "...and account that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood." which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, 
as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. So Peter spoke of Paul's writings as those which can be very hard to understand, hard to be understood. And indeed, it is true. Concerning which, Peter says, those who are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle, struggle, sometimes unto their own destruction. The most controversial of, of Paul's, of the elements of Paul's writings would be his writings as they pertain to the law and the believer. This was, in many ways, Paul's focus in, in much of, of his writing because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. If you can say it this way, he had a sore spot here. You know how we all kind of have those sore spots? Something that, that, that kind of hits us in such a way that we get very, very adamant about it and we, we um, give a, a, a particular perspective and that perspective um, can, be, can push people a little bit uh, in their faith or in their understanding and that does so because it's such an important issue to you well the law was one of those issues to Paul and the relationship of the believers to the law was one of those issues and so because of that we have some some statements that that we might consider somewhat extreme and, and somewhat difficult to wrestle with as it relates to the law and grace within Paul's writings his efforts to reach the Gentile world with the gospel would often come head to head with those whose recognition that the Old Testament law is indeed good would cause them to lean upon the law too heavily and thus either alienate Gentiles who did not come from a Jewish faith tradition or deeply confuse them and place upon them a weight which would absolutely change their perspective of the gospel which stripped them of their joy, which stripped them of their contentment, which stripped them of the peace that God intends for us to have within our Christian life. And it served in many ways to confuse grace rather than to clarify. And that was one of Paul's great struggles. Thus, we see it come up quite often. We see it in Romans 7, 8, and, uh, 6, 7, and 8. We see the entire book of Galatians. We see it in Philippians chapter 2. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We see so many places. We, we actually see it scattered throughout 1 Corinthians as well. We're going to try to look through all of these in some manner or some way, shape, or form over the next several weeks to understand what Paul is saying, what Paul isn't saying, and where these things fit together so that we can be related to the principles and the precepts of Old Testament law properly. We're going to at least seek to understand these things, understand Paul's teachings of the law, what, what they are, why they exist, what our relationship unto the law should be. And so as I mentioned today, we, were not, we will not explicitly be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That will come in a message further down the line. But I want to begin at the beginning with the history of this controversy as the Bible presents it. And for this, we go to the book of Acts. I have you there in Acts chapter 10. Let me just give you brief context in Acts chapters 8 and 9 before we get to chapter 10. In Acts chapter 8, the deacon Stephen has just been slain by the Jews. A man named Saul was there consenting unto the death of Stephen. This persecution had caused the believers to scatter, some to leave Jerusalem and to stretch throughout the Roman Empire. Saul then goes to a place called Damascus and he's going there to hunt down more of these Christians. He has been given, as it were, an open warrant to hunt down Christians and he's very good at what he does. And so he's going to Damascus to find more of these and as he does so in Acts chapter 9, he is confronted with the risen Lord. 
He is blinded. He hears the voice of the risen Lord. He uh, acknowledges him to be the Lord. He is led to the city where a man named Ananias is told to lay hands upon him to give him back his sight. He receives his sight. He is baptized and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, at this same time, we read of Peter, who was in Joppa, and he was upon a housetop praying about the sixth hour. This is in Acts chapter 10. And Peter sees a vision, and he sees a vision of unclean animals that are on a sheet. And the Lord tells him within this vision to rise up and to eat those animals. And Peter is very uncomfortable. He refuses to do this, stating that never in his life has he eaten an unclean animal as according to the law. God then declares this in Acts chapter 10, verse 15. The Bible says, The voice, and the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Don't call common what I have cleansed, Peter. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Again, this vision is repeated three times, after which Peter was somewhat confused. And the Bible tells us he was in doubt as to what it meant, that he was not supposed to call uh, unclean what God had called clean. And at this time, the Bible tells us that servants came from a man named Cornelius. They appear at his door. Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. He had seen a vision as a devout man, and the Lord said to call Unto, to go unto Joppa to call unto this man called Peter and Peter would show him what he ought to do. So Peter is told by God to arise and to go with these men doubting nothing and Peter does so. Of course, I'm paraphrasing um, quite, li- quite uh, um, uh, uh, liberally here. Peter goes and he, he goes and he meets with this Gentile, this Roman cor- uh, centurion named Cornelius. After Cornelius explains what he has experienced to Peter, that he has experienced this vision, that the Lord has told him this thing, uh, he shows that he is a man uh, of devotion, uh, he is a, a, a devout uh, follower of the Old Testament God. Peter responds this way in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. The Bible says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him, that worketh righteousness, is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And he continues there. uh, I'm not going to read it, but he continues and he preaches the gospel. Peter puts together that in fact and indeed, God is no respecter of persons, that men are not clean or unclean in the eyes of God due to some ceremonial, ceremonial outworking, but that every man that fears God and every man that follows God is accepted of God. Now take note that Peter is not saying here that all roads lead to heaven. Peter is not saying here that the way to the Father is not exclusively through the Son. That's why right after this, Peter goes on to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The very fact that Peter is being sent to Cornelius to finish the story, to round out his understanding and his knowledge, to give him the gospel, demands that we understand that Cornelius had not yet been given God's Holy Spirit. He had not yet uh, um, understood the fullness of the gospel because he had not received that gospel. He had not heard it. So when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus made clear that he is the only way to God. 
And that's what we find next. Peter gives Cornelius the gospel. He speaks first of John the Baptist and, and uh, what the ministry of John the Baptist. And then uh, verse 38, how God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And how through Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he, he died. He rose again the third day. And he has done so for our sins. And then we pick up in verse 44 and we read this. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him, to tarry certain days. So the Holy Ghost falls upon the Gentiles. They speak in tongues. They magnify the Lord. The believing Jews are in amazement. Peter reasons that the Spirit of God having fallen upon them, there is nothing that would hinder them from being baptized, and they baptize them in the name of the Lord. Peter then returns to Judea, where the news of these events had created quite a stir among the believing Jews. So we read in Acts chapter 1 verses 1 or excuse me 11 verses 1 through 4. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him saying, "Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and did, didst eat with them." But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them saying, and we'll, we'll pick up in just a moment. So Peter returns after having spent some time with Cornelius, and this was a big problem because clean Jews never dined with the unclean. This was in contradiction to their traditions, in contradiction to their laws, in contradiction to their customs. And thus the believing Jews are troubled that Peter had gone to this house of this Gentile, Cornelius, and had dined with him and had stayed with him for some time. And thus he had, he had defiled himself. And in response to this, Peter recounts what we've just talked about in Acts chapter 10. Peter recounts that they had received the Holy Spirit. He perhaps recounts his vision of the sheets as well. And he puts it together that, look, there is no man that is unclean. I am not unclean or clean because I eat with a Gentile or because a Gentile eats with me. A Gentile is not unclean just because he's not born a Jew. And so there is this perspective that is shaped. Now, at the end of this rehearsal, Peter says this in verses 15 through 18. As I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This thing is from God, Peter said. I know that this thing is from God. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it fell upon us. And, and we have believed, we have received the Spirit of God. They have believed, they have received the Spirit of God. Therefore, there is no difference. 
They received them as the Spirit of God outside of the law. We receive the Spirit of God within the law, but we both receive the Spirit of God. There is no difference. God has thus granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. God has declared that he has called the Gentiles clean. And the Jews who heard this thus held their peace. They rejoiced in the wisdom of God. They heard this and they were rejoicing. Well, that means that God has opened up this salvation, has opened up this way to the Gentiles, recognizing the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. We'll see this more when we get to the Jerusalem Council in James. Not in the book of James, but James speaking at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, recognizing that Old Testament promises are being fulfilled through Gentile salvation. They were understanding that something very new was happening here. And the reason why they knew that that very new thing was valid was because of this sign of the Holy Spirit of God, of the speaking in tongues, of all the things that, that Joel prophesied would happen in Joel chapter 2 that are now happening, and they're not just happening to the Jews, but they're happening to the Gentiles. And that's why it was so important. That's why these signs were so important in the early church. Because things were going to change so dramatically that if they did not have God's seal of approval, some visible manifestation of the seal of God's approval, they would never have believed it. It's the same with the resurrection, right? We just came out of resurrection season and we asked that question, why is the resurrection so important? After all, Lazarus rose from the dead. After all, men, uh, 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 children in the Old Testament were risen from the dead. In the New Testament, Jesus uh, rose several people from the dead. Uh, when when G Jesus resurrected, other people burst out of their graves. Why is Jesus so unique and so important? There are tales all throughout history of people rising from the dead. Well, here's the thing. Jesus claimed to be God, Right? So he, if, if, if Jesus is not God, it's one thing for the God in heaven to raise a person from the dead. But if Jesus was a blasphemer of God, God would never have raised him from the dead. They would never, God would never willingly validate that man's ministry through a resurrection if he was not God. The very fact that this man, not, not Lazarus never claimed to be God, the widow's son never claimed to be God. They raised from the dead. Okay, they raised from the dead. God raised them from the dead. But that, the father raised this one from the dead who claimed to be God means something. No other Messiah, no other claimed Messiah, no other person who claimed to be, to be God has ever risen from the dead. Why? Because God would never countenance a person to compete with him. He would never allow a person to be raised from the dead that claimed to be God when he wasn't. That person can stay in the grave so that everyone knows he's not. But this man who claimed to be God rose because God's stamp of approval was on him that what he said was true. Here the Spirit of God fell upon the believers showing God's stamp. that The Jewish believers knew that the Spirit of God falling upon them was the stamp of God's approval, was the stamp of God's working, according to Joel chapter 2. And if that same stamp of approval has now fallen upon the Gentiles, then there's something happening here. And it is of God. It must be of God. Because they have received the Spirit of God, just as the Jews have. And so we have this, this new circumstance where the Gentiles are now being saved. We, of course, saw first the Jews, then we saw the Samaritans, 
And now we have seen the Gentiles within the book of Acts all receive the Holy Spirit of God. Now, at this point, the book of Acts moves to other events. The church is spreading throughout Syria. The persecution of believers by Herod the king until the day that he, him glorifying himself as God, claiming to be God, is struck dead. Um, and the Bible says he was slain by the angel of the Lord for not giving glory to God. We also learn of Paul and Barnabas. Paul, having been saved there in Acts chapter 9, is now commissioned by the church of Antioch with Barnabas to be sent out and to journey throughout the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel. And they begin doing so, and they focus their, their first trip primarily in the region that we call, in the Bible, Galatia, to be modern-day Turkey. And they immediately come up against unbelieving Jews contending against the gospel in Derby, in Iconium, in Lystra. These people are very, the, the Jews in these cities are extremely hostile to them. Uh, they're stoned, they're thrown out of the city, they're left for dead. Uh, they, they are, their lives are in grave danger. They were not just met with theological resistance. They were met with violence for their teachings that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God. A threat to their laws, a threat to the false gods as far as the Gentiles were concerned, and a threat, a, a threat to their, their system as far as the Jews were concerned. And this leads us to Acts chapter 15, which is really where we're going with this this morning, where these controversies really come to a sort of a climax in the church. And beginning in verses 1 and 2 of Acts 15, we read this. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, and this would be in that Lystra, Iconia, Derby area of Galatia, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas were in Galatia at this time. They were preaching and they were teaching. When they came across some men from the church in, Ju in, in Jerusalem, from the church in Judea, they were believers from Judea who had come into Galatia and were among the brethren. And they were teaching the brethren that in order to be saved, they had to submit themselves to the circumcision of the law of Moses, to the circumcision according to the manner of Moses. Now, we know that circumcision is not just a, 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 a law thing, right? Circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham, and yet it is rooted specifically in that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is in many ways codified in the law, but they are teaching it after the manner of Moses. It was uh, particularly as it was written in the law, the eighth day, all of those, all of those things. And they were saying that you cannot be saved if you don't submit to circumcision. Well, Paul and Barnabas had a major problem with this. And so they disputed with them in no small way, right? This got contentious. This got serious. It was a really big deal, especially to Paul, who was a minister commissioned to go into the Gentile world, who understood through his time with Christ, being taught by him. Galatians tells us that he spent three years uh, before he presented himself to the church of Jerusalem, being taught by Christ. And he understood through this time that no uh, man in Christ was to submit to the law to be saved. Christ had fulfilled the law. But what was significantly more concerning than just their false doctrine, of which Paul and Barnabas regularly contended as it related to the people that believed in the idols and people that believed uh, just the Old Testament and, and, and such, what was particularly concerning 
was that these men had come up as brethren from Judea. These men had heard this somewhere and now were spreading it and they'd heard it in a church and they were spreading it from a church and this needed to be settled. They were claiming to represent sound doctrine and Paul says this is not sound doctrine. To this end, Paul and Barnabas, among others, felt compelled to go down to Jerusalem to find out whether or not these men were teaching what was being taught in Jerusalem and to figure out whether the apostles and prophets approved, or apostles and elders, excuse me, approved of what was being taught here. Furthermore, this would give them an opportunity to clear up the matter themselves and to get the church on the same page, to find unity among the brethren, which is always, should always be our goal. So we read in verses 3 and 4. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenis and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they head toward Jerusalem, and they pass through various other regions. They declare to all of those churches as they're walking through these regions that salvation has come to the Gentiles, that people in Derby and Lystra and Iconium, they're getting saved, uh, that the Holy Spirit is falling upon them. There are great works being done. There are great things being done there. People are, are casting off their idols, and so they were very very, very pleased. There was great joy and gladness. Then they arrive at Jerusalem and they're received of the church, the apostles and the elders, and they declare what God had been doing throughout the Gentile world. We'll see in Galatians uh, that when they got to the church, they just declared to the church the good stuff, that God is doing this just generally. And then it was not until they got into a more closed environment of just church leaders that they said, there's a big controversy that we need to settle. So they didn't bring that controversy before the whole church. They only brought it before the leaders of the church. And they settled it behind closed doors, as it were. And then they, they filtered that out through the church after the fact. So he declares this salvation. He declares these things in Jerusalem. And then as he gets to this smaller group, we find a group of people, as he's declaring Gentile salvation, that kind of take the bait. He's looking for those. He's trying to draw those out that might dissent, and he finds them. So verses 5 and 6 tell us this. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. So there was a group of believing Pharisees, and we know already of a couple of these, right? We know that Nicodemus was a believing Pharisee, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea was at least on the Sanhedrin. We don't know if he was necessarily a Pharisee, but he was on the Sanhedrin, and we know that he was a believer. So we know that there were any number of Pharisees which believed. As a matter of fact, John tells us of a group of Pharisees that knew that Jesus was, was telling the truth. It says that they believed, but they were unwilling to confess him because uh, they were ashamed because they loved the praise of, of, of um, man above the praise of God. And maybe some of them finally got to that point where they were willing to, to get on God's side at any cost and thus truly believe with all their heart. And so we, we see these, these Pharisees, this group of believing Pharisees who spoke up. Paul says all of these great things are happening to the Gentiles. And they said, okay, well, then the next step is you need to get them circumcised. And then you need to teach them the law of Moses so that they'll believe the law of Moses and, and obey the law of Moses. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to draw out so that we could bring about 
settling this controversy. So the apostles and the elders come together to consider this matter. No doubt, um, Paul says, no, 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 we're not going to get them circumcised and we're not going to teach them to keep the law of Moses. And that brought about this, this consideration. Now, before we get into the arguments, a few things that I do want to mention here. The first line of contention intersects well enough with the issues that Paul and Barnabas faced in Galatia. It is possible, perhaps even likely, that when the Pharisees were saying here um, that they um, that they had to be circumcised, that they were per- that it was perhaps that idea. Now they need to get circumcised. That was being carried into Judea and and led to this natural conclusion among these people who went into to Galatia that well that means you have to be circumcised to be saved. And maybe that's not exactly what the Pharisees were saying, but that's what the laymen or those that were sent took from it. So we see that, and there's an intersection there. But notice that they contend for something else as well, something which we did not read about early in in Acts 15. They don't just contend that you have to be circumcised. They contend that after these people got saved, they need to be circumcised, and then they need to keep the law of Moses. So we have a second layer here that they need to now obey the law of Moses. And this adds an interesting dynamic to the disagreement. It's one thing for people to say you must believe the gospel and then be circumcised to be saved, as with those who speak about confessing and believing or believing and being baptized or repenting and believing or any of these other ways. Uh, They they kind of put the acts together and they say, well, it's a one-time act where if you do this, then you'll naturally do that. And those are things that the church has contended with in any way, shape, or form. While Barnabas were directly opposed to even the one-time action of circumcision as a requirement to salvation, the context is at least uh, considering a one-time act of validation and within that, um, you know, there, there might just be a, a misunderstanding. But when the Pharisees add, it, add to that the necessity of keeping the law of Moses, everything changes. Now we have one of two possibilities. Either the Pharisees, which the Bible calls believers, so we have no reason to assume that they're not, either they truly believe that salvation is only to those who keep the law, or they believe that circumcision uh, and, and thus keeping the law were necessary as believers, that in order to maintain a proper Christian walk, you had to keep the law of Moses. Now, to this point in the text, we don't really know which one the Pharisees believe. Do they believe that if you don't keep the law of Moses, you're not saved, or you have to earn salvation? Or do they believe that, no, you're saved by grace through faith and perhaps circumcision, a natural next step, whatever, just as some people would say with baptism or, or, or any of those other things. And then you have to live your Christian life under the law of Moses or keeping the law of Moses. Which one is it? We don't know yet, but we'll see hints of it as we continue through, through the book of, of Acts and through Acts chapter 15. Continuing in verse 7, the Bible says this, And when there had been much disputing... Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, this is Peter speaking, Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. 
But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So there is much disputing happening between Paul and Barnabas and these Pharisees. Then Peter speaks up, and he speaks on the authority of God as God had chosen him to be the one through whom the first Gentile would hear the gospel, would receive of the Holy Spirit, and thus be, be entering into this, the church and into this new thing that was happening. And he, he speaks on this authority. And, of course, the events that he's speaking of are the events regarding Cornelius, right? The events that we've already spoken of, that we read about in Acts chapter 10 regarding Cornelius. And he reminds them that God knows the hearts of men and that it was God giving them of the Holy Spirit that validated to the church that these men were saved just as it validated it in the church of Jerusalem. And that at the moment, God put no difference. At that moment, at the moment that the Spirit of God fell upon the Gentile, God made it clear that there was no difference between the man who kept the law and a man who did not as it related to salvation. Those who were circumcised and those who were not circumcised as it related to salvation thus signifying that God had accepted their hearts toward him. Peter then says in verse 10, if God has accepted those who are not Jews, who are not circumcised, who have not kept the law of Moses, why then should we place this yoke of burden upon them? If our fathers were not able to bear that yoke, and we are not able to bear that yoke, then why would we place that yoke upon them? We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. If by grace the Jew is saved, and by grace the Gentile is saved, then why add the yoke of the law, the burden of the law? Now we continue in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And so now Paul and Barnabas declare these wonders. We find from Galatians that Paul and Barnabas took with them Titus. And remember how we talked about uh, Timothy, that, uh, that when Paul found Timothy, which he has not yet in Acts 15, but um, when Paul does find Timothy, he compels him to get circumcised, specifically because Timothy was going to be ministering heavily to Jewish populations, just so that there would be no offense. But Paul explicitly told Titus not to get circumcised, and he brought Titus to this Jerusalem council as an uncircumcised believer to show the power of the Holy Spirit in one who was not circumcised, to show that this man was not circumcised and yet he still had the Spirit of God, to show that he was not circumcised and yet he was still a minister of the gospel. Now, to this point, the big question that has been addressed is whether or not a Jew or Gentile is saved by grace alone or by grace plus something. Whether or not the yoke of the law is a burden which accomplishes belief and Peter, among the other disciples, plainly says, no, that the, that the yoke of the law is not a part of the burden of salvation and dare not be. But then, the question also, do the disciples need to begin submitting themselves to the law of Moses after salvation? This is the next question. Sure, the Gentiles should not try to bear the yoke that their fathers, that the, that the fathers of the Jews, and that, that even these Jews in this age could not bear through the law. But here are believing Jews. And while these believing Jews know full well that the law had nothing to do with their salvation, yet simultaneously, there's no doubt, and we know this from history, that the Jews continued to keep the law. There, there weren't a lot of Jews who got saved and then cast off their traditions. They continued to keep
keep the feast, just knowing that the feasts meant a whole lot more than they ever thought. They continued to eat kosher. They continued to be clean ceremonially. Many of them, most of them did, particularly in the early church. So the question then, and naturally so, they saw these things, as Paul admits, as an extension of the character of God, right? The law is an extension of God's character. Paul says in Romans that the law is holy and right and good. And so if the law is holy and right and good, he says it in Galatians as well. Well, then the law is a natural reflection of the character of God. Why wouldn't the Jews continue to keep it? Just appreciating it for what it is, a reflection of the character of God. Then should the Gentiles be taught that of necessity they must keep it as well? That's the next question. And this is where James speaks up. In verses 13 through 21, we read this. James was, uh, perhaps we might call the leader of the church of Jerusalem, the head elder there. And he says this. After they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that would be Simon Peter. Simeon would be another name for Simon. And of course, they're calling him by his Hebrew name because they're in Jerusalem. Simeon hath declared how God, and by the way, Peter calls himself Simeon, not Simon, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So there's, there's precedent for this to be Simon Peter in Peter's own writings. So we know that this is Peter here, just, just to clarify that. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being ready in the synagogue, being read, excuse me, in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So James reminds them that Peter's experience of God opening the way from the Gentiles agrees wholly with the promises of the prophecy, uh, and he's quoting here from Amos chapter nine, verses eleven and twelve. He connects the rebuilding of the temple to Herod's temple, and he connects the drawing of the nations to the beginning of the church age. Now, naturally, we would not believe that this is the end result of that prophecy. We yet see a further fulfillment. None of them could have anticipated that in 70 AD the temple would be destroyed and that they would again be scattered, that there would be a greater scattering than Babylon and that there would be a greater destruction than, than the destruction of Solomon's temple. They could not have anticipated that. God did not tell them it was going to happen. And so progressive revelation being what it is, we have thus taken this prophecy that James interprets as a near fulfillment to have happened at Pentecost and then at, at the Gentile salvation, and we would extend that same prophetic fulfillment into history, into the time of the regathering of the Jews and the next temple that will be built at the end of this age. 
So we have perhaps a little bit of a distinction there uh, based on the nature of progressive revelation. Either way, James states that God has known his works from the beginning of the world. And his sentence, he says, none of this is a mystery to God. None of this, none of this has thrown God for a loop. God did not uh, initiate this new covenant and then say, uh-oh, I hadn't really thought of all of the ins and outs of what this is going to mean. Now, now what do the Gentiles do? Or, and now now, now what, what, what are we going to do with the Jews? And how are they going to work together? And, and are we going to have two different laws and two different gospels and two different expectations? I, I wish I'd have thought it through. God, God didn't do that, right? God knew from, world, from the beginning of the world what was going to happen. So James says, none of this is a mystery to God. And he says, therefore, my sentence is this. If none of this is a mystery to God, and we see what God is doing, my sentence is this that the Gentiles which turn to God and believe should not be troubled. Only that they be requested as believers to avoid association with idols, to avoid fornication, to avoid things strangled, and to avoid meat with the blood. Now notice here that of these requests, two of them relate to the moral law and two of them relate to the ceremonial law. Two of the requests that James says to make of Gentile believers, not for salvation, but just in the manner of living. And we can see here quite clearly that this is manner of living stuff, right? This is how they live their lives. As you live your lives as believers, you are under no burden of the law, save that we would request no fornication, no idolatry, no eating of things strangled, and no eating of the blood. Now, it's at this point we have to understand this about the controversy. The conclusion James comes to demands that we understand that James and the church are not laying down qualifications for salvation that's already been settled. Only that now that we have all come to agreement that the Holy Spirit fell upon Jew and Gentile alike, that these things fell on them by grace through faith regardless of their relationship to the law, that we don't have to then impose the yoke of the law upon them for salvation, that the Gentile world should also not be troubled with the law as it pertains to living, with the exception of these four requests. And interestingly enough, when Paul writes Galatians, as we'll see next week, he doesn't even give them these four requests. The only thing he gives them, the only thing he says that the Jerusalem Council told him that he must pass on, must pass on, is that they take care of the poor. That's not even, that one's not even written here. That was probably a decision as it related to, 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 to a different part of their discussion. Not, not necessarily relevant here. But Paul doesn't even mention those four things to the churches of Galatia when he writes Galatians. Other than by nature of morality, that they not fornicate, that they not be idolatrous because those things are entirely incompatible with Christian living. right? But those are the four things that, that James believes should be requested of him. James is speaking about how the Gentile world as believers ought to live their Christian life. And notice why. Notice the reason why he says that they should avoid these four things. It is not actually for their relationship with God explicitly. He says in verse 21, why? For, he says, why should they avoid these things? For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Why should they keep these four laws, two of which are moral and two of which are civil? 
because to breach any of these four Jewish laws would cause the church to be looked upon with tremendous offense and disdain among the Jews who every Sabbath day are taught the law of Moses, right? They go every Sabbath day to the synagogues and they read Moses. And because they read Moses every Sabbath day in their synagogues, and because these, the, these, part, these four particular laws are, are things of tremendous weight and importance to them, it would behoove us as believers in seeking to reach the Jews in, in the synagogues in our cities, James says, that we would not add undue offense. Now Paul is going to heavily expand upon this idea with the principle that we call the weaker brethren principle that we'll talk about later on in our series. And so he says, because of the Jews that don't believe but that read Moses regularly, abstain from these four things. By keeping these four Jewish laws, their difference from the pagan Gentiles would be clear and their testimony among the Jewish populations of their particular cities would be made much, much stronger. To this end, we see in this council established doctrine not only as it relates to keeping the law for salvation, but as it relates to to what what they settled of keeping the law as believers. And then the remainder of the New Testament is going to give us the insights into what this does and doesn't mean. The value of the law for the unbeliever, which is what we're actually, our context in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, when we get there, we're going to teach about the law's function, particularly as it relates to the unbeliever. The value of the law for the believer. And then the limitations of its uses. And that's what we're going to highlight over the next many weeks. So the Bible goes on to tell us this. Let's finish off our history here in verses 22 through 31. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain, excuse me, which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. So a letter was sent with Paul and Barnabas, but just to make sure that Paul and Barnabas didn't write the letter themselves and were in in direct opposition to the Church of Judea, just to show that the Church of Judea was in true unity with them on this matter, they also sent two more men, a man named Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and a man named Silas, who would eventually become the Silas that Paul will travel with on his next journey. 
and they go together and they say these things from their own mouths and they speak as James had suggested. They describe these things to the Gentiles and notice that they say that these men who had gone from them but who were not of them, right? They are from us but they are not of us. And they had gone from them were teaching a doctrine that was subverting their souls. That was undermining sound doctrine. And that's what we're, that, that, this is very much similar to the language that Paul is going to use in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue. They were confusing them, misdirecting them from the truth, pointing them toward destruction. And so they were relieved of these burdens, being exhorted to keep these four laws to avoid these things. And notice in this particular context, it explicitly said, from meat offered to idols. Now Paul will directly speak against what is said here in 1 Corinthians saying, it is okay, balancing out even those who would take this too far and to say this is now command rather than request. And so Paul will talk about eating meat that is offered to idols in 1 Corinthians and say how all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. So even these things, Paul is going to balance out a little bit in his Gospels. And again, we'll come to them. And it says that when the Gentiles read these things, they were relieved. (laughs) They rejoiced in the consolation. They, They rejoiced that this burden was not levied upon them. The comfort of knowing that the yoke of the law had not been levied on their shoulders. And we would presume that if he had not yet done so, as these letters were going, Paul would then have written at some point in in the the future, near future, after these letters had gone out to to Galatia. And he wrote the book of Galatians uh, where this controversy had come to light for Paul and Barnabas. And with a very strongly worded letter, Paul will directly speak toward those who would seek to impose the law upon the believers there in Galatia. And we'll consider that beginning next week. Now, this lays the historical background for the passages unto which we will go and the doctrinal layers that we are going to add over the next several weeks. And though this was more of a history lesson today, I'd like to draw from it three thoughts that we can take with us as we leave. Point number one All who stand before God one day will be there by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We need to establish this clearly. I quoted it earlier. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Salvation is open to Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond or free. There is no respecter of persons with God. But... Salvation must come through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We'll consider next week the reality that among Jew and Gentile, salvation has always been by grace through faith. But, but what Jesus makes clear, and it's reiterated throughout the whole New Testament, is that only the people in the world who will be, rec- the only people that will be reconciled to God in this life are those who come through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter would say, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, speaking of the name of Jesus. And salvation is not is is 
it, through Jesus alone, and then we also know, of course, that it is by faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A salvation by works is a salvation in which I can boast. If I can do anything, if I can have any merit, if I can have any worth by which, if there is something that I can have that someone else can't have, by which I can be saved, then I am in a merit-based salvation. And then I have a place to boast, and the Bible says there will be no boasting on that day. There will be no boasting on the day of judgment. There will be no boasting on the day when the Lamb's book of life is open, save in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one that has done it. By God's grace, we who have been saved are saved through faith, a salvation which is not of ourselves, a salvation which is the gift of God, a salvation which is not of works. When we stand before God one day, there will be no man or woman who will be able to credit themselves with any part of their salvation. It is the gift of God. We would know and understand that these concepts were not up for debate in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council any more than they ever have been. Point number two. The just shall live by faith. What begins in the Spirit by faith must continue in the Spirit by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Romans chapter 14 verse 23 tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us it's impossible to please God outside of faith. Faith is that which pleases God. Thus all those who love God and serve God will be doing so for one primary reason. Because the things that they are and the things that they are not doing or saying or thinking are not being done or are being done, are not being said or are being said, are not being thought or are being thought as an extension of their genuine, unentangled, unhypocritical desire to obey the revealed word of God and to deport ourselves in the manner that honors him by faith. Our faith will never lead us into opposition to God's word. Our faith will never draw us into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. For indeed, 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 tells us that there are three characteristics which define the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We've sung that one. They that overcome the world are they that have believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that live by faith. See, the just shall live by faith. So we establish these two principles. We establish the principle that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the finished work of God, that there is only through Jesus Christ, that, that uh, it is by grace alone, through faith alone. Then we establish the principle that as we continue to live this Christian life, it will be by faith. That the just shall live by faith. And we establish these two so that we can lay a, a third application before you for this morning. 
And of course, we'll continue this theme throughout the next many weeks. Be careful imposing a set system upon salvation and Christian living. We all have a way that we understand salvation, and we all have a way that we found it, that we found that path, that we were enlightened to that path. The way that God taught us, the way that God convinced us, the way that we yielded to the truths of the gospel, the the things that God did in our heart through that. And though Jesus is the only way to God, let us be careful trying to lay down such a systematic way that people must be led to Jesus that we don't allow any flexibility. There are great systems that people have developed as it relates to helping share the gospel so that we can have a systematized way to do it. The ABCs, accept, believe, confess. The Romans Road and the five verses of the Romans Road. Uh, the, um, the, um, there's others. <laughs> Not coming to mind at the moment, but there's others, right? These systems that we've put in place to help people, the, the, even the sinner's prayer, right? It's a, it's a system that is put in pra- place to help people understand how they can take the next step. To take the person that says, I want to take the step, but I don't know how, and give them a way how, right? There's value in these things. There's a, any number of people that are going to be in heaven one day because they've read a sinner's prayer, how to be saved, and they've read a sinner's prayer on the back of a tract, There's any number of people that have read Accept, Believe, Confess in a tract and and, uh, did it and were saved. There's any number of people who read Repent and Believe and and, and will be in heaven. There's any number of people who have read uh, or who have heard these things, the Romans wrote, and, and who will be in heaven one day. But if we say this is the way that a person has to understand the gospel, this is the way that a person has to come to Christ, then we, we bear, we, we're in a place of danger. We are limiting the scope of man's understanding and the context, the innumerable context within which a man might understand Jesus Christ and might be drawn to his gospel. All of these things, among so many others, have been used to bring God into his kingdom. God has used music to bring people into his kingdom. God has used evangelists. God has used Sunday school. God has used suffering. God has used blessing. God has sometimes convinced people by the New Testament. God has convinced some people by the Old Testament. God has convinced some people through historical arguments. God has convinced some people through theological arguments. In Acts... God used visions, such as with Paul. God used miracles, such as with Simon the sorcerer. God used signs and wonders to validate his ministry, bringing people to a point of decision about Christ and thus believing on him in the world. Great is the mystery of godliness. We'll talk about in 1 Timothy 3.16 when we get there. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Right? It's it's, It's a great mystery. It's all through Jesus. But if we are not careful, if we systematize things too much, if I see something that someone is or isn't doing, someone, something that someone did or did not do, 
And we say, well, therefore, because you did or did not, because you, you are or are not, therefore you are not in, or you're not, or you're, 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 we're adding a layer of material to something that is wholly spiritual. We live in a society built from the ground up on Judeo-Christian values and traditions. The way we worship, the way we live, how we interact with the world around us, what it means to be a testimony of Jesus Christ, what it means to share the gospel. Uh, These are somewhat steady within our circle, but these are not the gospel themselves. These are not faith-filled living itself. These are what we know because this is what we have experienced. What our culture and traditions have taught us about what it means to worship God, what it means to to come to Christ, what it means to know these things, believe these things. And they've served us well as a culture. But just because a manner of faith living or a method of sharing the gospel serves the people of Minnesota and the United States of America in 2019 doesn't mean it will serve a missionary well in Japan or in Hungary or in Papua New Guinea or in Haiti. Just because a manner of living or a method of sharing the gospel served well in 1920 or 1970 doesn't mean it's going to work real well in 2020. Doesn't mean it's wrong. But the method may not be as effective as it once was. There may need to be a new angle, a new approach. Not a new approach to God. The only approach that is valid is Jesus Christ. Only one. John 14, 6. But maybe the methods used, the way that it has to be expressed, has to change depending on who we're talking to. Maybe the way in which my Christian life works itself out in society and culture needs to change depending on the needs of that society and culture. The gospel does not change, but people do. Cultures do. Societies do. It will never change that the just shall live by faith. It will never change that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Those things will not change. But what that looks like, while having any number of similarities, might also have some differences from time to time, from place to place. And that's okay. In the book of Acts, the believing Jews found tremendous value and meaning in the law. And that should not surprise us because, as I mentioned before, they finally understood what the law meant. That this thing that had been pointing to Jesus for all this time, now they found the end goal of all of that pointing, right? They found the end goal of the the law. They found the end goal of the feasts. And because they see Jesus in the feasts, they see Jesus in the temple. They walk into the temple and they see the laver and they see the bread and they see the, the candlestick and they see the, the altar of incense and they say, it's all Jesus. And they see it. And they know it. And they can appreciate it. And that's good. The feasts were pointing them to something. The Sabbath was pointing them to something. The sacrifices represented something. And so there was tremendous value in that. It was familiar. It was worthy. It was a reflection of, of the relationship that they had to God And to this end, it was right and good that by faith, the just shall live by faith, they were willing to observe the law. But what about the Gentile world into which Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas would go? They don't have that connection. To a Gentile world growing up around pagans, there would be those like Cornelius who had found in the law a great allure, 
right? Cornelius was a just and devout man before he had the Holy Spirit fall upon him. He had not proselytized into the Jewish religion as far as we know, but he was a man, a good man, and one who appreciated and loved the law. And then there would be those who came out of paganism, knew nothing of the traditions, and found no value in that faith, in, in, in those faith traditions. And that's okay. The Jerusalem Council said that's okay. They were, as we all are, called unto purity, a purity which is, by the way, by nature of the same God and Lord over us all, prescribed in the law, but which transcends the law. That's natural and understandable. We'll talk more about that as we continue. But God did not impose a system upon grace because we walk by faith and the just shall live by faith. Let us therefore be careful as well. Not that we must cast off any system that we know. There are those that when they learn that, that the system is not essential, they say, aha, get rid of the system. Well, that may not be what's best. If a system serves you and your family well, that's great. As long as that system is by faith. And we haven't systematized it down to checklists and muscle memory. If Christian life is just checklists and muscle memory, then I can do it in carnality as I can do it in the spirit. And if I can do it in carnality as I can do it in the spirit, then there's no checks and balances to keep me in the spirit. But let us also be careful that we do not presume to impose our system upon every place and time knowing that the gospel never changes, knowing that the link to pleasing God is and always will be by faith alone, knowing that the same Lord over all, the same Spirit within us, will naturally lend to more similarities than differences, will naturally lend itself to unity among the brethren. No matter what space or time, the same Lord and the same Spirit over all will naturally lead to unity among the brethren. Knowing that purity is purity, truth is truth, righteousness is righteousness, no matter who you are or where you are or when you are, but also knowing that a system, a religious system, a method by which I live out my faith may not be the only method that works to the end of faith. And so being careful not to confuse the methods that we use with the substance of our faith itself. Now again, I, this is a little bit ambiguous at this point. As we continue throughout the weeks, we're going to see what the, gospel, what the epistles have to say about this more directly. And by God's grace, by the end of this series, we will have rounded out our understanding, maybe not of every nook and cranny, but at least of a framework within which you can figure out all of the nooks and crannies for yourself. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.